Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 259. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 259 you're listening to. My guest today is Lenise Bent. Lenise is an audio engineer who's worked both in the music and the film industries. She was the first woman to receive an RIAA Platinum album for her engineering work on Blondie's Auto American. Many of you might remember Rapture or The Tide is High, two significant hits off that record. And she's worked on some pretty groundbreaking records uh, with Steely Dan, Super Tramp, Fleetwood Mac, The Knack. She's worked with producer Mike Chapman. She worked with engineer Roger Nichols. And she's an active member, of course, of the Recording Academy and the Audio Engineering Society and uh, the P&E Wing of the Recording Academy and Women's Audio Mission. Of course, you might remember her name from uh, episode number 257 when we had a group of people together for the Music Expo episode. So... Very excited to bring you a dedicated interview just for Lenise. So, Lenise Bent coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about small business in the world of pro audio. So, just got back from Colorado last night, visiting family over the course of the Thanksgiving holiday. Was able to get away for part of the day to go hang out with some great people, uh, Former WCA guest David Glasser and James Tuttle uh, got to meet up with those guys, and they made arrangements for us to meet up with Eben and Michael Grace of Grace Design, which is located in Longmont, Colorado. Was able to do a factory tour. We went out for some tacos and went over to Eben's house for some coffee. Uh, it was a great time. One, one of the things that I, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, sometimes fall into when I meet with people for the first time or, or when I'm just sitting down and talking with somebody is I tend to fall into that interview type mode. Uh, any of you who have met me may, may have discovered that. Sometimes I'm, I might start asking you lots of questions. <laughs> you know, I just fall into that, that natural state of wanting to interview somebody. So in the course of hanging out with Evan and Michael, I was able to, you know, not only get that factory tour, and see really firsthand that they are a small business and ask them lots of questions about their business, things that affect the small business, and which was really fascinating. Not only are they fantastic people, but it was just great to get kind of a, a face with this company that I've known about for many years. And in fact, they're celebrating 25 years this year. And that's you know something to be said. In the world of pro audio, I know there, there's a lot of people that have been around for a while, but you know there's also a lot of companies that come and go, and it's it's a tough business. And I think for a lot of us, we don't really get the face of the people behind the companies. We we see the products, that's for sure, and we see the ads or we hear about the ads. You know, as case in point on on my show, you hear about our sponsors and. A lot more people should see behind the scenes and see the personalities behind some of these companies because there's some really outstanding people making some incredible products for us out there. And 
Another thing that really struck me is, you know, you, you might hear about some of these things in the news. I won't go down a political rabbit hole, I swear, but you might hear about the tariffs, for example, and you might think, well, yeah, okay, you know, that's off in the distance and that's that doesn't really affect me. You might think that, but you'd be wrong, actually, because as a matter of fact, uh, you know, Grace Design in particular deals with metal fabrication. They have, their products are like built like tanks, first and foremost. And of course, the metal that they use is affected by tariffs. And of course, they, they can't, you know, eat that cost. That has to be passed on to the customer, unfortunately, so that they can survive and they can continue paying their employees in this small town of Longmont. And it's just fascinating to me to see this firsthand. I think if you are in the pro audio industry and you have not been able to take a factory tour of a small business like Grace, Retro Instruments comes to mind, they're a small business. As you are assembling your small business or you are trying to keep your small business as an audio professional alive, be thinking of the pro audio manufacturers like these guys, like Grace, like, like sound devices and retro instruments and folks like that. You know, they're not massive companies and uh, they have a crew of people to pay. They're affected by everyday things in the economy and uh, decisions made up at, you know, the high levels of government in, in regards to trade. And it's easy, to, I think, sometimes to dismiss some of the companies because we, you know, some of us may have a mentality of, well, those are those are big companies and, you know, whatever. You know, we might have a little bit of a, of a wry attitude towards them. I would really encourage you to open your mind a little bit and realize that it's an ecosystem, as I always say, that we live in, especially in the world of audio. Uh, our pro audio manufacturers make uh, fantastic products for us to use, tools for us to do our job. We are not an island, I think is what I'm getting at. There, there are the pro audio manufacturers, there are the musicians, the filmmakers, the game makers. There's so much here that is interconnected that it really drove it home for me in meeting Michael and Eben. And this trip gave me a new appreciation for pro audio manufacturers and the work that they do and the people that they hire and employ which affects all parts of the ecosystem. It's just good to go out and meet people, hear their stories, hear where they're coming from, and to see the pro audio manufacturer side of it uh, from this angle for me on this trip, that was key. Cheers to uh, the pro audio manufacturers and uh, Michael, Eben. Great meeting you guys. David, James, great to see you. So if you guys are listening, thanks a lot for your hospitality. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. 
I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, let's get to it. Lenny Spent here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Lenise, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here with me today. Certainly. Thank you so much, Matt. It's a pleasure. Let's just jump right in. You grew up in Los Angeles, is that correct? I sure did. I grew up in Compton. I'm actually a homie. You're a homie. <laughs> what did your parents yes. do? My dad was an educator at Northrop Aeronautical Institute, which became Northrop University, and he became the dean And uh, eventually. So we had a lot of aerospace and a lot of education growing up. And then my mother was just a housewife, oh. which I always crack up saying, until I was about 11. And then uh, we moved to... Torrance, and she went into aerospace as well. So we had a lot of airplanes and aerospace in our world, and but we also had a lot of music, too. You were involved in the Screen Children's Guild, and you worked as an extra for TV and film. Yes. That's one of the things that can happen when you grow up near Hollywood, is that uh, your parents can put you to work at an early age, and it's okay. Child labor's okay. Uh, <laughs> and we had a blast. My brother's first gig actually was in the movie The Birds. That was his very first job at eight years old. He's in the birthday party scene. If you blink, you'll miss him, but he's he's in there. Yeah, and it was a lot of fun. And 
really sparked just a fascination with film and audio and and technical stuff like that, film and, and TV creation. I have to say also my, my oldest brother, Wayne, worked at Jans Electronics in Compton. Any of the older engineers in L.A., they know exactly where Jans Electronics was on Rosecrans. And he would bring home, you know, amplifiers and tube pieces of equipment that he needed to repair. And on his bench at home, he was, you know, like 16 years old and I was three. And the smell of tubes, when he would fire those things up (laughs) and solder and all those things, those are some of my earliest comforting memories. Whenever I smell, you know, a tube amp warming up or a radio or something like that, I just get this wonderful feeling. And it reminds me of my, my brother Wayne and smelling that as a little kid, one of my earliest memories. So it started there. <laughs> and I had older brothers and sisters who, I'm the youngest of six. So there was a lot of them buying records I have a sister 16 years older than I am, so she was buying rock and roll records, and my brother Wayne was, and then my other brother and sister also were. So I've still got their 45s, and actually, from my oldest sister, some 78s of the coasters. That And I just learned, I mean, music like that was in my life from out of the shoot. Well, and, and film would play an important role in your life later, which we'll get to eventually, but I find it interesting that you were in this guild at a young age, getting exposed to all of this. What was the first time you realized recording was a potential career or it was a fascination of yours, audio recording? Again, when I was eight years old, I would go with my dad to Sears so he could buy film for his Argus C3 camera. And in the cabinet there was this little tape recorder, you know, with three and a half inch reels, a little silver tone tape recorder. And I would go with him just so I could look at that. And I wanted that thing so badly, I, I'd feel sick. And I just had to have that tape machine. So for actually, it was before I was eight, because I got it for my eighth birthday. And that was my first recording that I did myself. My Uncle Willie had a reel-to-reel, which I still have his. And he was a kind of a bluegrass Americana singer, they call him that now, and picker. And he would record himself on multi-track and do harmonies and add parts on his um, seven and a half inch quarter track machine. And, and my mom would sing harmonies on it. I was fascinated with that. So it was just from the beginning, I just loved it all so much. And then when I saw this little tape machine, I had to have that. And of course, then I would record things off the TV or my cousin and I would do plays and we'd record, but I was recording everything. But I was studying in school film. I didn't know there was a career in audio. I just knew I loved recording as a kid. And then in college, well, high school and college studying film. But my first time of going into recording studio was the boyfriend I had at the time, Robert, his band, he had his guitar player, Roger, was engineering for Leon Russell. Hmm. So let me see. I was, um, I think I was 18 then, 18 or 19. And he was 18. And he said, hey, come over and see the studio. And 
I was just an enormous fan of Leon Russell's, and so I I just wanted to meet him, <laughs> and I went, sure, I'll come over. Yeah. And so after school that day, I went to Leon's house in Encino, and I was just so nervous, and I walk up there, and I ring the doorbell, and he actually answered his own door. Leon answered the door, <laughs> and I almost fainted. <laughs> you know, seeing an idol. I mean, I really... I was so into Mad Dogs and Englishmen and Delta Lady and the the Leon Russell record and uh, all of the stuff he had done. So anyway, he says, oh, you must be Roger's friend. Come on in. <laughs> and so I walk in to the foyer and to the right where, you know, he he had turned his house into a recording studio. It's like a kind of a compound thing. But where a dining room used to be, I heard all this great, amazing music, these background vocals. He was working on a, the record, Will of the Wisp. So there are like 21 tracks of background vocals as I walk in the door. And I just hear this and I go, oh my God. And I walk in there to see Roger at a console and there's a Stevens 40-track tape machine and there's monitors and there's outboard gear and there's music and and I'm seeing for the first time an actual recording studio and I just and those voices were like the angels singing to me it truly was my epiphany I was just struck by lightning and I said that's it I know what I need to do now and I don't normally dwell on the gear but you did say something that I think it would be interesting to the audience. Steven's tape machines weren't always the 8, 16, or 24 tracks. You said 40 tracks mm-hmm. because those machines operated slightly differently than than other machines, if I'm correct. Well, as far as I know, there are only three 40-track machines were made. Steven's machines and, and uh, his wife had one. And Leon Russell had one. You can go online and see it. His exact one, he had all this wonderful inlaid wood put around it and stuff with piano notes and keys and things. But yeah, you know, I didn't know the difference about anything. I just saw this tape machine and the fact that there could be 21 tracks of background vocals was okay because there were 40 tracks on this machine. (laughs) Um, And I'm sure they bounced them down. Now you dropped out of college. And you enrolled in recording school. Is that, is that right? <laughs> yes. I, I dropped out the next day after going to Leon's house. I was going to Long Beach State and auditing some classes at USC, studying film and all. And the next day, boom, I dropped out of school, found a recording school, which there were like none back then. Found one at Sherwood Oaks Experimental College that Brian Inglesby was teaching at this off-the-wall sort of school where you could take odd courses. It was upstairs on an empty building in Holly- on Hollywood Boulevard, and he eventually opened Soundmasters Recording School. So I signed up for, for this course the next day after dropping out of university and then went home and told my parents, thank goodness my dad taught at a technical school. At Northrop University was basically a like SAE or expressions for for aerospace. So he got it. And out of all of his kids, none of them went into engineering. And, you know, I was the youngest and I was a girl. And I, I don't think he ever suspected or thought about what I would eventually do, except in, you know, I was studying film and television and art and all of that. But, you know, when I did this, my older brother said, well, dad's finally got his engineer. <laughs> now, 
When you finished up at that school, you immediately went into the village recorders. You were hired over there as an assistant. Were they receptive because you had finished a program at Soundmasters? This is a real important part. So I sign up for this school and I'm first night of the class and there's 50 guys and there's me. And I'm sitting in the front row and it's just a lecture hall. It's just a room with a bunch of chairs and and Brian Inglesby, the instructor, is he's talking about phasing, uh, waveforms, amplitude, velocity, Doppler effect, compression, limiting, all of the first night. But he's only talking about it. There's no board up there to demonstrate it, no equipment, no nothing. And a lot of the guys in the class were roadies and people had had some experience or a little bit. And uh, I I had none of this. So I hadn't a clue what he was talking about. And, and I just went, oh my God, I've really screwed the pooch here. I dropped out of university and I'm, <laughs> and I haven't, I have no, I can't tell what he's talking about. And I panicked and I called Roger after class about 1130 at night. And I'm just panic stricken. And I called him and said, I don't know what he's talking about. Blah, 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 blah. And he goes, come over. <laughs> so the next day after class, you know, I'm just like, oh man, I've really <laughs> messed up here. I, I go back over to Leon's house and Roger goes, he lets me in and he goes, okay, now this is a limiter. This is 1176 limiter. This is what it sounds like when it's activated. This is how you use it. This is what it's doing. And I could see it and play with it and said, and this is a compressor. Here's an LA-2A. Here's, you know, uh, here's what compression does. So he kind of, he talked me down. And so I went to school on Monday and Wednesday nights. And then because I dropped out of university, I had Tuesdays and Thursdays open. So after school on Monday and Wednesday nights, if I needed to work on something, or I'd just go over to Leon's and practice what I had learned in class. And so for the nine months that I took that program, I also was learning in a proper studio. Roger, I need to mention, was... Um, this great guitar player and songwriter, and in my boyfriend Robert's band, but also he was working on his little invention then, which his name is Roger Lynn. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you saved that to, to pop that on me. Isn't that That's nice? That's great. I know. I love to pop that because people go, oh, yeah. Roger was already working on the Lindrome. Then, so clearly he's a brilliant engineer and musician. And also I got to practice with him in Leon Russell's studio with my boyfriend Robert's band playing. Sometimes I'd get to record them. And so I had hands-on experience while I was going to school, which I, I want to encourage anybody listening to this, if you are going to school, to also seek out every opportunity to practice what you're learning as you go along. Schools now have these wonderful control rooms and studios within them. So you get to practice like that, but you've got that safety net there. Being in a real studio where, you know, we'd get kicked out at about two or three in the afternoon because Leon's going to record with George Harrison or Joe Cocker or whoever happens to be hanging out at his house. So because I was so myopic about doing this. 
that energy attracted people. Opportunities arose for me to hang out at other studios. Oh, well, you should go over here. I have a friend working at Paramount. Why don't you go over and check that out? Or a friend of mine, Artwood, was a drummer for Gary Wright, the Dreamweaver, and they were recording over there. So he said, come over and see that. You know, once my interest was piqued, opportunities came up, and man, I snagged them every chance I got. And so that really helped. It wasn't just taking courses. Mm -hmm. And the cool thing, too, about the school back then, because there weren't any, there wasn't a facility that had an actual studio in it. So our labs, we do three weeks of lecture, three weeks of lab, three weeks of lecture, three weeks of lab. The labs were at Capitol Studios and at Conway. Huh. Yeah. Because that's, they, we'd go in at night and they, that's, so I learned there as well. That was significant. So I'm, what I'm curious about is, were there opportunities to go over to the village is ultimately why you chose to try to get a job at the village? No, the reason, <laughs> the reason I wanted to, and, and somebody that I had met along the way recommended it. There was Westwood One Radio Productions around there, and he had mentioned the village. And, I, and it was in West L.A., and I went, oh, that's a cool part of town. I interviewed at Wally Hyder's in Hollywood. Well, I just contacted, like I said, after I graduated, I took a couple months to figure out what I wanted to do. I didn't immediately jump in because I wanted to find studios that was a good fit for me or just find out how, what do I do now? You know, how do I get a job and what would that mean and all of that. So when I found that there was the village and somebody that I knew from Westwood One recommended it, I went over there and just kind of showed up with my resume that had nothing on it because I hadn't, well, I had done some things, but I hadn't worked and that's okay. They don't expect that. I want other kids graduating to know that, yeah, you have to have skills, but don't freak out because you haven't recorded all these hit records yet because they know that, so it's okay. But I've just showed up, and fortunately, something I wasn't aware of, the owner, Jordy Hormel, felt that hiring women as assistant engineers was a, a really good idea because he felt that women in the studio, our egos weren't going to get in the way of the rock stars. I, I guess he'd felt that some of the guy engineers were really wanting to be musicians or something, or I don't know, but he felt that women, our egos wouldn't get in the way of the project and that we had better organizational skills. Hmm. And at that time, you know, you had to keep that legend going of the labels on the tape boxes and what tape was this at what number. And, you know, you're operating the tape machine, but also you're, you're keeping a log of everything that's happening. You're keeping a log of when you started, if there was any downtime, if it's all these things, uh, what microphones and what inputs, if you cross-patched anything. We had very distinct notes that ne needed to be taken. And he just felt that women did a better job at that. I guess that's kind of sexist, but he felt it was a really good idea to have women in the studio. So there was already one assistant who was a woman, Terry Becker. She was there for a couple months before I got hired. Gary Starr was the studio manager of the assistants then, so he's the one who actually hired me. And the village also had a woman tech doing hmm. 
tape alignments and repairing things. Wendy Bluth, she is now an astrophysicist. (laughs) Yeah. So at the time, out of the, when I was there, out of the six assistants who worked there, two were guys, four were women, and one of the techs was also a woman. And that was 1976 through 79 when I was there. So I have not seen that well, clearly it hadn't happened before, but I don't think it's really happened since. There are more women in the studio all the time, but that was quite wonderful and innovative, I think, on Jordy's part. And it worked out really well for all of us. Every one of us went on to have successful careers. Um, sadly, I'm the only one left. Oh, you are. Okay. Were you able to survive on what you were being paid? At the time, yes, because the economy was much different. I got an apartment with the receptionist who worked there, who I didn't know. Her name was Ricky Stein. She just moved out from working at a studio in Chicago, Paragon Studios. And so she needed to find an apartment. I needed to find an apartment. So he said, how do you do? Do you want to be roommates? Okay. So we got an apartment. Two-bedroom apartment back then, very nice in a nice part of town for, I think it was $385 total a month. And we split it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And we were on salary at the village. It wasn't an hourly independent thing. I was an employee of the village. So I got a salary, which would vary as to what that meant week by week. If I worked normal hours, then it was it was okay. Uh, I remember one week I worked 110 hours, and I figured out I made a dollar seventeen an hour. Oh my god! <laughs> that week, but that was an extraordinary week, and also it was my provocation. I really wanted to work on those projects that were there, so I was I worked on three projects in one week. Now, you worked your way up to an engineer position, and eventually, I'm fast-forwarding over, I'm sure, a lot of details, but you eventually became the chief engineer for Mike Chapman, producer Mike Chapman. Yes. I had had my become an engineer moment. You know, you never know when that's going to happen. And I just think it's important to say that while working at the Village during that time, it was an extraordinary time to be in the music business and the recording world. In those days, people didn't walk into a recording studio to make a record without already proving to a record label or somebody that they were worth investing in, that they had talent, that they had songs, that they were worth making a record of. So it wasn't like just anybody could make a record back then like they can today. Mm-hmm. And The Village was one of the prominent studios back then as well as now. So high-end talent came through there. So I had the great fortune of learning on some of the best records recorded back then with the best engineers, best producers in one of the finest studios. And so that's how I put my toolbox together. So those skills, I'm grateful to the village for, but also that was deliberate on my part. Mm -hmm. I knew that that's how I wanted to do it. I didn't need to become an engineer right away and have my own studio or anything like that. I wanted to learn from the best and work on the best. And that has served me so well my entire career. 
So I, I wanted to put that out there for potential engineers up and coming to consider working with people who can really help you. So I had my moment almost three years into it when I was working on a record with Jean-Luc Ponty and the engineer We've been tracking with some of the best session players in the business for about a week, and I had had a lot of hands-on at that time on the project. And then on the Friday, the last day of tracking, the engineer got in a car crash on the way into the studio, and he wasn't hurt, but he couldn't make the session. And, you know, downbeats at 10 o'clock, and you've got, you know, triple-scale A-team in there, and they said, well, just sit down hmm. and you do it. Get to work. Yeah. And and so that's, I, I was prepared. I was ready. So when that opportunity arose, because you never know when that's going to happen. And boy, you really hope that you've got your act together when it does. So you don't lose that opportunity or, or mess it up. I had demonstrated throughout the week that I could do this. So the musicians were confident. And Jean-Luc was confident, and he just said, you do it. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things, such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. I want to ask you about dealing with challenging personalities in the studio, which there can be plenty of. And, oh my and I mean, not to mention You're just musicians, me. but also producers. I don't know Mike Chapman. I've never met him, but I do know that he has a reputation for being a high energy person. So could you talk a little bit about <laughs> producers and or musicians that you're working with and how to maintain things while those personalities are exhibiting the strange behaviors that they can exhibit? Well, I have to say, and Mike's the first one to say this too, so he supports me on this. He, yeah, he's pretty wild and crazy, however brilliant. And I learned so much about producing from him, pop records. And he was looking for, he wanted to have a woman engineer. Hmm. How about that? So the timing was perfect for me to be hired by him. And so many people said, no, don't do it. It'll, it'll ruin your reputation. Because he wasn't, he had all these hit records, but they were pop records. And back then, people were kind of pretentious and uppity in their bands. I, I can say that sort of, you know, like a lot of big bands and groups were, they're writing their own songs and performing. And it was progressive rock and all of that. And here he's writing pop tunes and putting bands together to sing them and all of this that they just, a lot of people thought that that wasn't the right way to go. However, he was a huge success. He and, and Nikki Chen just wrote some of the biggest hits in England. And so it was a very different approach than what I had been experiencing at the village. Yet I learned how to produce from him a hit song in a, in a short amount of time. He was very good about keeping within budget. He would have this grid. He'd say, today we're doing this. Today we're working on this. Today we're working on this. And he was more of a Svengali type. Mm -hmm. 
yet he had great relationships with the artists and and all and so there was there was a lot of fun and craziness in the studio yet he got down to business really fast so that was good for me too to be that engineer but also because I had worked on some of these great records like with Steely Dan and the Asia album and Gaucho and then also Breakfast in America and The Last Waltz and those are just and Tusk, yeah. Fleetwood Mac. I had relationships with people in the business that, that Mike didn't have. He and Nikki came to Hollywood, and they didn't have these relationships, and he knew I did. So, for example, the Blondie record that we did, I knew to hire for the song The Tide is High, Alex Acuna, Emil Richards, and Ollie Brown to be the percussionist. He wouldn't know to do that. Because he was from Australia. Who are, who are the best recursionists. He's from Australia, but uh, had moved to London very early on. And he and Nikki were enormously huge and successful. I really want to ask you about this because I just got a notification that I had an Amazon book, a book I ordered from Amazon just show up here at my uh, sister-in-law's house. I ordered the Roger Nichols recording method, a primer for the 21st century oh. audio engineer. Can you tell me about your time with Roger Nichols, the impact he had on you? We we briefly touched on it a bit uh, when you were at my birthday party, and I just want to mm -hmm. ask you about him. Tell me about Roger and, and, and what you learned from him. Well, Roger Nichols was a profound influence on my career. I'm so grateful that I got to work with him, but I also fought for that. I was a big fan of Steely Dan, so I, as an assistant, I said I want to work on their record when they were coming, and that was the Asia album. And so Roger was the engineer. This was at the Village. And he's absolutely brilliant. You know, he was like a nuclear physicist down in San Onofre at one point in his life, and he became an audio engineer, he said, because he couldn't tolerate the poorly recorded records that were out there with clicks and pops and hums and blah, blah, blah. He grew up in Cucamonga and went to high school with Frank Zappa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine two completely different people. I got to work on two Zappa records, two at the village, Chic Your Booty and Joe's Garage. And so to, to know that Frank and Roger would actually hang out after school when they were like 15 years old and do engineering dweeb music <laughs> stuff just cracks me up two very bright people yeah oh extremely bright and and extremely wonderful roger was so generous with his knowledge and sharing with me proper recording techniques and it was all the little things that he did that makes asia's be asia and Gaucho be Gaucho and all those, that sound, that Steely Dan sound, because they were perfectionists, clearly, and he was too. And so he taught me things like using the shortest mic cables possible. Don't let them touch. How about that? And having hmm. the cleanest signal flow as possible. There weren't a lot of gizmos and widgets in his world. He wasn't fascinated with outboard gear. Those are very clean records because it was a very clean signal flow. So hmm. on Donald's vocals, there would be an 1176. It would be an 87 and an 1176, boom, going to an M79 tape machine. But as far as 
miking the drums. There were no super tricks. It was just getting the right mics in the right place with the right performers. And one thing that I learned from him too, when you're working with the best of the best, which we got to, for the drums, as far as mic placement and all, one of the things we do is through the headphones, we'd let the drummer move the mics around to where it sounded right in his phones. Because he, these were seasoned session players. They know what mm. their sound is. And so if it sounds good in their phones and it works, it's going to work in the studio. The placement was very close, but uh, let them fine tune it to where they know, yep, that's it. Yep, that's what that sounds like. Yep, move this a little bit. He was very short on words. There wasn't a lot of chatter in those sessions. Donald and Walter alone aren't the most social animals in the world, and they, they could communicate with each other. Every sentence and word was loaded. It took me about two months before I wasn't totally intimidated by them. You know, there wasn't any small talk. And one thing wonderful about Roger, being as brilliant as he was, it was very important to him that he communicated well. And so he, you, you know, the, the type of guys who the come off as, don't you know how smart I am? They like to use a whole lot of big, long words and too many words to describe a really simple thing. And it's like, I already know how smart you are. I just need to know how to do this thing. Please help me. And Roger was very succinct and very straight ahead. He was a surfer. He was a diver. He had so many interests. He had his fast cars. And he was just kind of a California beach dude. That's how he like to come off. And he could take the most complex concept and describe it to you so that even a child could understand it. He was such a great communicator and knew he didn't need to impress anybody with his, you know, extreme knowledge and genius. He really wanted people to understand how things worked. Like you say, well, the Gozinia is here and the Gozaucha is here. And <laughs> Yeah, stuff like that. And he would just be very straight ahead. And you know what he used to do? It was funny. He used to sit at the console and outside the village was a rack of magazine stands. And they would have all these like really disgusting girly and sex magazines in them. Ugh. Some horrible magazine. And he would have that there. And inside, he would have a manual that he was actually reading. But he would have this disgusting magazine <laughs> on the outside of, you know, some girly magazine. And, but he wasn't reading that at all. <laughs> he would just do things like that. And he, because the sessions were so, mostly in overdubbing. You know, if we were tracking, things went pretty quickly. And people, they were all the best, so they could get these songs down. If there were four takes on something, that was extraordinary. It's usually two or three, boom, done. Then it was just the overdubs that mm -hmm. took a long time, and mostly the vocals. But Roger was, he got me up to speed. Well, I worked on other things before I got there, so I was capable of working on a Steely Dan session because their initial assistant had moved on for the previous records that they had done at the Village. And so he actually came in the first night to kind of hold my hand and make sure I was okay and they were okay with me and and being the newbie and, and being a girl. That could have made a difference. Fortunately, it didn't. I found that the 
better the musicians and the more serious they were about it, that they could care less what my gender was. They needed me to do my job well. And that assistant had to do their job well. And if I could bring anything else to the session, that was great. But I had to have that down. And it didn't matter what color I was, what gender I was, how old I was, whatever. If I had to be able to fulfill my responsibilities on that production team. And that was the most important thing. And I found that gender and those things mattered to people who were not nearly as professional or serious about their projects or whatever it was. It was so rare that I came across that. Now, you made a transition to post-production. I'm curious why that is. What drove you to that? Was that an economic decision or was that just an interest in film? And I had alluded to your change to that earlier in the interview. Well, there's also another reason. While I was working with Mike, we were working a ridiculous hours. We'd finish a record on a Friday and start a new one on Monday. And we did so many in a row. And it was pretty stressful and pretty crazy. And I ended up getting diagnosed with cancer, stomach cancer, uh-huh. about hmm, two and a half records before the Blondie album. And I really wanted that record. And I was going to hang in there. And I did that. I was pretty sick by the end of that and went with holistic doctors. The day after we mastered Auto America and I drove down to Mexico and they said, quit your job or die. So I went, okay. And so I quit and got well, but totally had to leave the music business. And it was stress-related and it was, I'm eating Roscoe's Mm. chicken and waffles and not not taking good care of myself. And so I kind of burned out. And So I didn't really work for about eight years. Fortunately, I was in a position personally and financially, I was able to not work. And But then that situation ended and I had to come back to work. And I knew that I did not want to put myself in that same position stress-wise that the music business had put me in. Also, within that time, the bottom had kind of fallen out of mm. the music business. So we were making ridiculous amounts of money. When I was making records, I made, I've yet to make as much money. <laughs> Comparatively to that time period? Oh, yeah. Well, because you had these huge budgets and people spent them and the rate I could charge back then was substantial Mm -hmm. and there are a lot of benefits and there was a lot of money back then in the music business people were buying records and you made money so after i came back to work i knew i didn't want to put myself in that position again and so many of my colleagues had gone from the music business into post-production so when i was reaching out as to well you know here i'm back in America and I'm back and I'm going to go back to work. What are you guys up to? What's happening? Blah, blah, blah. And uh, I hadn't totally left. I mean, my situation all that time was very music oriented. My my ex was in a successful band. So I was still connected. Yet when it came to going back to work, so many of my colleagues were not in the music business anymore. They had hmm. gone into post-production because that's where money was. And there was more, you know, you'd grown up a little bit. Some people wanted mm-hmm. more stability. They wanted maybe to get married and have family. 
things like that that you could do if you were health insurance in the union. Yeah. So of course the area I went into was non-union. <laughs> but uh, that's okay because I'm not that disciplined, I have to say. I'm the wrong personality mm. for that. And I knew that, but I went into an area where it was sound design and foley, which is organic sound effects, footsteps, and things that people really do, as opposed to car crashes and explosions and space noises and things like that. These are the sound effects, body hits and things. And so you record a real person who's a Foley artist doing that. I'm sure most of the people in your audience know what that is, but for the people who don't, that's what Foley is. And it's called Foley because the first person to do it was a gentleman named Jack Foley when sound came into picture and they would have the cowboy running, you know, riding the horse across and he came up with the coconuts for the feet and chains for the bridle. And, and, you know, he had to add these sounds because shotgun microphones at their main job in post is to pick up dialogue and Everything else you can add. So that's what I went into. In fact, the, my first gig was taking the entire Disney cartoon catalog. This is the gig I got with one of my former colleagues. She had worked with Fleetwood Mac, and she got me the gig at, with Disney, Buena Vista International. She was doing this now, post-production. And so she got me in on this, and uh, we were doing what's called foreign music and effects tracks, foreign m meaning... You take out the English dialogue, and wherever that was taken out, then all the other sounds went away too. The background noise, any sound effects, any music, optical noise in these old cartoons. All of that had to be filled in. So you could take that cartoon and dub any language in it you wanted. And so it was just music and effects. So we did the entire cartoon catalog, and that was a lot of fun. And a lot of work, too, I'm sure, because that's a big catalog, right? It's a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot of work. And then we did, you know, I did a lot of foreign music and effects for television and animation, as well as animated series and domestic as well. And then went into foreign dubbing supervising with DreamWorks, which was very cool, and that's what made me want to come back to making records again. I walked into this party one day, and I'd been doing post for a long time. And one of the supervisors from Disney had just gone over to DreamWorks, and she said, what are you doing here? It was a music party. It was the opening of a mastering facility. And I said, well, I used to be in the music business. And she said, really? You know, see, you couldn't talk about your past. When you went into post back then, A lot of those post companies, they really resented people who were in the music business. You couldn't say the M word because a lot of them had been burned by the music business. So they had gone into post-production and one person I applied for a job when I was first starting out again. And he goes, you may have been something in the music business, but here you are nothing. Wow, (laughs) That's like an evil character out of a movie. Yeah, it was it was amazing. So we couldn't ever talk about nobody knew what we had done and and the three of us who were working at this post facility all had been successful engineers in the music business and had decided not to do that for mostly economic reasons. 
So when this person saw me walk into this party, because a friend of mine was becoming a mastering engineer, and, and so she said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I used to be in the music business. And she says, can you read a score? And I went, yes, because I, in Compton growing up, I'd been in the Compton Youth Festival Orchestra for three years and played flute, first chair flute and second chair flute. And we made records and all that, but we I learned how to read a score so she said, can you be in Tel Aviv in three weeks? And I went, sure, why? <laughs> and she said, well, we need music supervisor to work with the foreign artists to produce their vocals for the foreign versions of these animated features for DreamWorks. Uh, this particular one was mm. The Road to El Dorado that Elton John had written all the songs for, but... In the foreign territories, they dub in star talent in the different languages. You know, there's like 70 different languages that get dubbed for these animated features because kids can't read subtitles. Uh. Yes. So it's a wonderful area to get into. Unfortunately, the money fell out of that as well, and Skype came along. And there's still some foreign dubbing supervisors, but they do mm -hmm. kind of like what we're doing right now. Some of them get sent, but back then it was big money. And so, yeah, that's how I got back into wanting to make records again. I've, I felt I was safe and healthy enough. I could handle it. And I, that was my true love, was making music. And so when I got to produce these great singers and talent throughout the world on these Shrek, Shrek 2, Spirit, the Stallion of the Cimarron, I got to go all over the place and work on these vocals, and I said, "Boy, I want to make records again, really bad." So, so you're you're back into it? Yes, I'm. I'm back into it. I love it. It's a whole different world out there because people don't buy music. I just finished producing and engineering an, an all analog record recorded to two inch mixed to half inch, and the vinyl will be cut off of the two-track masters. It was cut by Ron McMaster hmm. over at Capitol. So that record will be AAA legacy quality, no D-word, sample rate of one-to-one, -one, and that will come out early 2020. We're waiting for the test pressings now, and that will be a tangible thing that I can take this thing and it costs this much to make it and we can sell it for this and you get exactly. some money back. What a concept. That's not the only reason to do it, but that's one. Yeah. How about that? I went to this expo thing after going to Music Expo with you. The following weekend, there was an event that happened here in Los Angeles called Get Together 2019 Los Angeles. And what it was, was a label market fair and music festival downtown LA. And inside the, the temporary contemporary museum down there, all of these small late record labels were represented. And some of them not so small. Omnivore Records was there and Anti Records, you know, Tom Waits label. But all of these labels with boutique niche rosters. One, for example, did only music from hmm. video games, and they had vinyl of that. One was Frontier Records, which is a punk label that started 40 years ago. They're having their 40th anniversary party coming up soon. I just went from table to table to table and was just fascinated how the passion and how many people are making records and cassettes. I know. They're coming out with cassettes. 
because it's analog and they're selling them. You going to this event brings up a thing I want to ask you about. I'd love to hear what your perspective is on networking. What are your thoughts on networking, getting yourself out there and, and meeting people? Oh, it's absolutely essential. Absolutely essential. I am out most nights. Last night, I saw three bands. And Mm. I brought an artist with me, and I brought... I was there to see some sound girls perform, Mm. you know, from Sound Girls Organization. And so the people I was with were also colleagues, and I met other people there. I'm very visible. I highly support networking, meaning getting out there and meeting people who are of the same ilk and the like. And we connect, just like going to Music Mm -hmm. Expo. Here I meet you. And I attend many events and expos just because that's my passion, is to follow this path of mine. And it's very important who you know and who you can meet. And I put people together. People put me together with other people. When they find out that you've done analog, you know, I do workshops now because I I know how to make analog records. And I know a lot of people would love to make analog records, but they don't know how. And so not only am I a good engineer producer for an analog project, but I can also teach somebody how to. Hmm as well. And it's becoming more popular now because it's a choice. It's not, you know, the pendulum swinging back. People want to create art in various mediums. It's not always just a a screen and a keyboard. Making analog records is very tactile. Picking up that reel and punching in and winding the tape onto the tape machine and running that transport. It's very hands-on and very satisfying. Regarding money, as an audio professional, are you a saver or are you a spender? These days, I'm a saver. I've got pretty much everything I'm, mm-hmm. I want at this age. I'm not, I don't need, in fact, I'm getting rid of stuff. But that's my situation. You have to be pretty creative these days to make a living in our industry. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you know that. And so we diversify. There are many things that I do, and that's how I support myself. I consult, I speak, I do workshops, I do get to record and make records here and there, post-production, preservation, restoration of poorly recorded audio. That's a good place to go. Being technical is good. I wish I was more technical, and I encourage students or people getting into this industry, you'll be more valuable to whoever you work for Mm. if you can solder and you're good in electronics. We weren't supposed to touch anything when I started because there was a tech department and they didn't want us to try to repair anything because they were responsible for the maintenance of that studio. And we weren't. We weren't allowed to touch anything. And so my electronic and technical skills on that level are not as good as I wish they were. And I actually took a a little soldering workshop (laughs) just to practice. (laughs) You know, I'm always learning. I I love that that mentality of no matter how much experience one has, always be learning, which is one of the reasons why I I got Roger's book. Oh, gosh, I I thought, that's a guy whose techniques and ideas I want to learn more about because he had such an impact on our world. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app 
And I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you say, Send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. I want to ask you about your thoughts on retirement as an audio professional. Everybody's got a little bit different perspective. You know, some say, oh, I have no retirement. I'm just going to sell off all my gear. My line is, is I don't plan on retiring. I want to work until I can't. So. What are your thoughts? Well, sadly, nobody encouraged any of us back then. We were immortal and bulletproof, and and there was tons of money back in the day. And so we just spent back then because we we're going to live forever, and money was always going to be there. And that was not just for musicians, but for the recording industry as well engineering. Post-production was better, but again, I was not in the union, so I didn't get a pension. I didn't get benefits. I I wish somebody had impressed upon me way back in the beginning, and this is one of the things I tell students. Oh, I also teach. I used to teach at SAELA, and one of the classes was studio protocols and procedures, but also that included how to survive in our industry, according to me. And I always encouraged everybody to put your money away, figure out how much you can save, and just put that away because you're going to need it and invest if you can and how important mm-hmm. it is to save money. Because I have been in situations where I was, it got pretty dark there for a time. And fortunately, I crawled out of that hole. And stuff happens in life. You know, I had to take care of my dad. So I had to quit working because I I had to for about a year and a half thinking, oh, yeah, I'm I'm doing posts. I can get right back into this, blah, blah, blah. Mm -mm. No, it took a long time. People remember the last person they worked with. And so I had to not start at the beginning again, but I had to reestablish relationships. That's where the networking comes in being a member of the Audio Engineering Society, being a member of NERIS, being a member of Women in Music, being a member of Sound Girls, being a member of SEMPTI, being a member of Cinema Audio Society, CAS, if you're getting into film. Join these organizations. These are your communities, and also they're Mm -hmm. a support group and that not only provide monthly presentations where you learn things, but they're also there to help you find jobs or help 
there's people out there to to help you out, and you're going to need that. You're, it does take a village. Well, fantastic. Lenise, it's been great talking to you. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real treat. All right. Well, you take care. Thank you so much. You too, Matt. Lenise Bent here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Want to thank my crew that helped out with the show, and that includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Chuck Smith introducing us with his warm and wonderful voice. Spread the word, connect with me on LinkedIn, have a fantastic holiday season, and take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called audio life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com. Check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.